Uh, the start of the week and plenty to catch your ear from the radio today. This is Playback Daily. I'm Carol Moran and here's what you might have missed. There's a lot of bad things happening in the world and for a week it just takes you away from all of that and it just you're smiling just constantly and you meet lovely people and you just have so much fun. will be a little bit like the common cold and that's where we think this virus eventually is headed. Mm-hmm. But it's not there yet, Claire. Uh, and so please let's everybody recognise that in this turning point, which is where I think we we are just coming into, uh, it won't be plain sailing. It's it's looking for life. It's looking for, is there anything below the surface that hasn't been sterilised, that can tell us, is our neighbour in space a place where life has arisen? And we'll start in the morning from today with Claire Byrne and the continuation of the series of Irish crimes and confessions. This week, the Salins train robbery of 1976. Tonight on RT1 Television, the second in a three-part series goes out. It's called Crimes and Confessions and this week it looks at the fallout from the Salins train robbery in 1976 and the fight for justice that the men accused have fought for over the past three decades. Now, Nikki Kelly and Oscar Brannock alleged widespread torture and violence in order for them to give Gardaí forced confessions. And in a moment I'll be speaking to reporter Mick Pilo. But first, here's a clip from tonight's programme. It outlines... The level of violence that both Nicky and Oscar had to endure at the hands of some of the investigating officers. From an early stage in the Bridewell, the sheets of paper were going around to make a statement or sign a statement. Blackjack was produced at one stage and any time you didn't give the answer, that's when you got hit. A lot of the bruising was managed with a technique to prevent from becoming too obvious, using the equivalent of rubber hoses. We were taking steps down into a tunnel. When I saw that the gates were closed and there was a bunch of detectives there and there was a bunch behind me, my heart sank and I remember thinking, this is it. You're going to get the beating of your life. And Claire spoke to reporter Mick Pilo. So the Salins train robbery, will you set the scene for us? What happened back in 1976? Yeah, in March 1976, early in the morning, um, what looks like a very sophisticated um, planned robbery took place of a train between Cork Dublin mail train, basically carrying a lot of money. Uh, I think £200,000 at the time was a huge amount of money in 76 was stolen by an armed group of men. Um, The rumours were that it was an IRA, it was an IRA heist, um, but the Gardaí focused on a newly formed political party, the Irish Republican Socialist Party, a party of the left, um, and it focused on particular members of that party, and Nicky Kelly and Oscar Brannock, Brian Brian uh, McNally and John Fitzpatrick were four men who signed incriminating statements saying that they robbed the train. And uh, it became, I suppose it became, you're too young to remember this, Claire, mm-hmm. I think. Uh, just about. <laughs> <laughs> but for those, this is just to say to this, this is a standalone programme in a three part story. Um, but it stands alone on itself. But those th- who, people who think they know the Salins train robbery story and the story and the plight of these men, 
I think we tell it in a very new, innovative way. For those who don't know people like yourself. Yeah, I, I thought I knew the story because yeah. it was in the headlines when I was growing up because it went on for years, as you'll explain now in a moment. But it's not until you sit down and watch this that you realise, you know, how big this was at the time. I mean, yeah. it was a huge event and still is for these people who are, yeah. are living it. And you see, the thing is, for those of you who don't remember it, and, and as you say, too young to remember it, I think younger viewers are people that are not so, well, not so young now. Now, I'm not saying you're not so young, Claire. Just yeah, well, remember. you know. Um, but those th- that generation and the next generation, my kids are saying, cheap. they're fascinated, shocked that the revelations of this, they said, this kind of stuff happened in this lovely country of ours. They're kind of going, oh my God, I don't believe it. Now, I, I think in some way, last week, the reaction from last week's programme um, People would be forgiven for thinking there was a few rogue Gardaí that were uh, acting outside the law. This story this week brings it on, tonight's story brings that into another level. And I think that is the important thing we need to hold on to in this. Mm-hmm. That there's another dimension to this. It's not just a few rogue Gardaí that Nikki Kelly and Oscar Brannock had to deal with. So they were arrested, they were charged. Then take us through what happened. They were arrested, they were charged. They, for the first year, the, the book of evidence wasn't produced because the Gardaí were trying to put the evidence together against them. The only evidence against them was their own incriminating statements. And the, the statements the Gardaí said, we witnessed them telling us they, they robbed the train. Mm-hmm. That was the only evidence against them. So when they were brought to court, there was, there was a 60, 60, 65 day trial. And in the middle of that trial, they were screaming that the judge was falling asleep. It looked like it was mad. It looked like this is crazy. They're not getting a fair trial. So it was the three judge special criminal court. Special criminal court. And one of the judges was seen to be sleeping. And you have the man who was happened to be visiting the court on a particular day who witnessed this. And he was eventually used as a as a an official witness to say I saw the judge yeah. was asleep. Yeah, and this man, it's extraordinary to happened to this man. It was absolutely amazing to find this man alive today who's 80-something years old in his late 80s. He was a Fine Gael, uh, a member of the Fine Gael party, upstanding member of the community. Just happened to call into the Special Criminal Court because he missed an appointment and he sees this judge sleeping and he's very annoyed. And he writes to Garrett and he, he, he comes back and he, he gets involved in the court case and he says, he swears an affidavit that mm-hmm. he's, the judge is falling asleep mm-hmm. and, and helps the defence try to bring this case to, a, to, to, on a, to basically to stop the, court, the trial. And he, ha- he gets a strange visit by the guards and is basically told, if you don't withdraw that affidavit, we'll consider you a subversive. And it's extraordinary to hear that from this man now Uh, Martin Reynolds is his name extraordinary man Mm -hmm. but his evidence made little difference made no difference the the court basically the judge died he wasn't well he shouldn't have been there but the courts a new trial Mm -hmm. in 78 in 78 and despite the medical evidence that said that they had all of them had and there was two or three different doctors had medical evidence that all of them had wounds that were uh, were consistent with their allegations. Mm-hmm. And there were international organisations involved here, human yeah. rights organisations. Amnesty International basically uh, put pressure on the government because Amnesty International were came over and and did a, a report on twenty eight cases that they were looking at, and they they were saying, look, the government needs to. To, to set up an independent inquiry into this because there's systematic uh, 
allegations by a group of detectives who seem to be specialised in coercing statements from, from people, from suspects, and the government needs to look at this. And the government d d ignored that. Basically... Uh, decided, well, if, if, they, if they have allegations, let them take them mm -hmm. to the courts themselves, civil or, or criminal courts. So in that new trial in 78, the men were convicted? Yeah. Nicky Kelly went on the run because he felt, I'm not getting a fair trial here. Uh, um, Oscar, Oscar Brannock and Brian McNally were convicted, um, spent 17 months in jail. Uh, they then, the, and the Court of Criminal Appeal quashed their convictions. On what grounds? On the basis that the, the ruling by the court that the evidence is basically said that the evidence against them, the weight of the evidence uh, to, to suggest that the evidence against them, that they, were, they didn't suffer oppression, the weight of the evidence didn't hold that argument up mm. and the court should have looked at that. And all they had against them was the statement yeah. that they had signed under duress. Yeah. And the extraordinary thing was when Nikki Kelly comes back, he thinks, well, I'll come back now uh, from hiding. From and I'll be exonerated US, And I'll too. be exonerated as well. But no, he actually is. He goes, he goes to the Court of Criminal Appeal to say, no, sorry, you have to, you have, your, your, your time is up. He goes to the Supreme Court, the High Court Supreme Court. He goes to every court in the land and they basically ratify his conviction and say, you must stay in jail. And, and that's the extraordinary thing because he realised I've no other recourse but to go on hunger strike. Right, and he uh, says in the documentary, he explains his reasons for going on hunger strike. Let's take a listen to that now. I wasn't going to allow myself to be incarcerated illegally for something I didn't do. I felt I had no option only to go on hunger strike. I was 38 days on hunger strike. Sometimes I was getting 100 letters a day. You can't do it unless you're serious about it. And probably in some ways, the first 20, 25 days is the most difficult. After that, your body starts to readjust, then it starts to eat its, itself. You actually go a bit blind. Nicky Kelly there, and after 38 days on hunger strike, he stopped and Mick explained what happened next. Well, he, he got a presidential pardon in the end. Mm -hmm. um, he was released on humanitarian grounds. He still felt that wasn't enough. He was an innocent man. And he eventually got a presidential pardon, which completely exonerated him. But what they... I mean, one of the things I've noticed, Claire, about this is that when somebody signs a false statement against their will, their very being, their very identity has been extremely damaged. And there is very little way back from that. And state apologies and, and inquiries, which Nikki and Oscar haven't got, which the, last week the Kerrigans and the Donnellys didn't get, yeah. they're helpful. But they want public inquiry. They want public inquiry because they want the state to look into how this happened, because they want to ensure that it won't happen again to anybody else. The ripple effect on, on, the, on all of them is a massive. I just see it in their very beings when I'm talking to the likes of Nikki Kelly and Oscar Brannock and Martin Connolly last week. Broken men, damaged men, um, irretrievably damaged because the torture they experienced is continuing as long, so long as the government doesn't provide them with a public inquiry to ensure that it will never happen to anyone else. And again, as you say, just like last week, the people involved in this, they want that public inquiry. That's their call. Yes, Absolutely. Mick Pilo's documentary Crimes and Confessions from today with Claire Byrne.
and on the Radar C show. That winning ticket sold in Castle Bar in County Mayo. Ray was talking to Mick Byrne. And Mick Byrne is on the line and uh, Mick uh, is from Mick Byrne's Bar in Castle Bar. How did you come up with the name for the pub, Mick? Well, it's, it's, a, it's a family-run pub for over 100 years, is Ray. It? And I tell you, you're on about Blue Monday and you're on about Boomtown Rats. And I don't like Mondays, but Mondays down here in Castle Bar is electric. And I mean that sincerely. Yeah, there's a, I'd say there's a buzz, is there, Mick? The atmosphere, is, the atmosphere is brilliant. The people on the street are in good form. Yeah. Everything is just buzzing at the moment. And the speculation as to who won it, you know, nobody knows. Like Eileen Magna were down with RTE yesterday and there was a rumour from Kalala to Belmullet to Shrewd <laughs> all over Mayo. But I'm delighted that it's absolutely in Castlebar and somebody in Castlebar won it. Right. Yeah, and now are you sure that it's somebody from Castlebar? Could somebody have been passing through, Mick? Uh, quite likely they could be going to Westport because Westport is a very, very busy uh, tourist town and yeah. I could well imagine that it would be. But I'd safely say it could be somebody in Castlebar shopping Fridays and Saturdays because Castlebar is a good business town too as well. Right. And, you, know, you know, I do know Fridays and Saturdays. I was talking to two uh, shopkeepers there over the weekend and they said they were never as busy with lotto sales. So I'm hoping it's somebody yeah. in the Castlebar area and we'll keep it local, you know. You, you speak of speculation, uh, are fingers been pointed in any particular direction? They've been pointed everywhere. Right. I'm getting into the car myself today <laughs> at 8 o'clock this morning. I never get up at 8 o'clock, but this particular day I had to get up and somebody let her go, you're on your way to Dublin. I said, I can't even drive. You know what I'm saying? But I mean, the crack is just brilliant at the moment. And everybody, and you know, oh, it's your man, your man bought the ticket there and he bought the ticket there. Yeah. So nobody even yeah. knows you for the yeah. ticket was sold. You know? And that guy has a smile on his face. He never smiles. He must have won. <laughs> Everybody. Like there was a there was a rumor out that somebody bought a ticket down the country last night in North Mayo. There's not even a shop in North Mayo in this particular place where your man lives, you know. But yeah. the crack was good. The crack was good. And it is good, you know, it is good. And, and any any rumours about what shop it was sold in even? No, no. nothing. I think to be honest with you, I think this is the fifth time I'm under contradiction on this, but I think it's the fifth big winner we've had in Castlebar. And yeah. I do know a friend of mine in Staunton's there, I think in 2014, he sold a ticket for 14 million. And he actually only told me last week, I think, that to this day, he still doesn't know who bought it. But now we have speculation ourselves since uh-huh. then, you know. Because you, uh, you don't have to go public on it. Oh, you don't have to go. Just keep watching and keep looking and see yeah. who goes on the holidays. Would you, the yeah, would, you go, would you go public on it, Mick? I would. I, I couldn't keep my mouth shut. I'd have to go public on it because I wouldn't stop smiling for the rest of my life. <laughs> I mean you? that sincerely. Mick Byrne from The Ray Darcy Show. And on Today with Claire Byrne, space, the final frontier. I always wanted to say that. In the morning, a great science communicator, Francis McCarthy of Blackrock Castle Observatory, was telling Claire about some of the coming highlights for space missions this year. Now, this year promises to be an important one for space exploration. There are several major programmes reaching the launch pad over the next 12 months. And for more on what 2022 holds for space travel, I'm joined by Francis McCarthy, Education and Outreach Officer. Officer at Blackrock Castle Observatory. Francis, good morning to you. And good morning. Let's start with the moon. What oh, better place? I know. To start. Did you see it in the sky? Isn't it just gorgeous right now? Beautiful it, full moon time of the month. Absolutely. This morning on the way in, it felt like it was right beside yes. me as I was driving in. But there are plans, aren't there, for robot missions to the moon this year? But some people might be surprised to learn that it's 50 years since we had any manned missions to the moon. I know. I mean, I 
don't remember it. I, I'm the age that I might just, as a very tiny little girl, have remembered it. But no, it, I don't remember humans going to the moon at all because it is really that long ago. Everybody remembers the excitement that was around in 69 when the first humans went. Well, they only went for another few years. The last landing on the moon with the humans is in the very early 70s. And why was that? Why has that not happened since? Well, at that time, they'd, NASA had already signed contracts to start developing what became the space shuttle. So there was an emphasis not so much on the, the big target of let's go to the moon, but let's develop reusable spacecraft and put things into near-Earth orbit, which has led to that explosion of spacecraft near the Earth, which do so many useful things for us. So the balance went, OK, the, the headline, go to the moon, or let's start launching. And I think they made the right choice. But now that we have so many spacecraft everywhere around our planet, we're now looking beyond. We're sending robot explorers to the moon, we're sending them out to the other planets, and we're heading back towards sending humans to the moon again. But the plan now, NASA's plan now, is for a robot spacecraft to go. Yes. OK. So the first thing that's going to be happening this year to get humans back to the moon is the Artemis mission. So the Artemis mission uses a new initial rocket launcher called the Space Launch System. This is a big rocket with lots of engines. They're hoping, and this has slid a few times, at the earliest to be launching that in March. They need to do a dress rehearsal first with everything in place. If that works successfully, then they will set the date for launch. So it could be as early as March. It could be April or it could slide into the summer. Once that is launched, that is a mission of sort of a dress rehearsal of what's needed to take humans to the moon. So big rocket, a European service module and above it, the Orion capsule that would hold the astronauts. This first launch of Artemis is intended to go to the moon, go around the moon and come back. It would be amazing. And then, you know, do it again with nobody on it and then put a lunar landing possibly within two years. And if you can't get there yourself. There's a company offering, a private company offering to put items on the moon yes. for you. Now, what's the point <laughs> of that? Um, well... I suppose if you've done everything, you might want to leave a little memento or something significant to you in a fabulous place. I mean, people go and put locks on bridges. So there's the desire to, to mark your space. And why not mark your space in space? So a private company has available little tiles that go into a lander that is due to go to the moon this year. You can purchase a space in this um, payload for something. Um, the intention is that Arthur C. Clarke's, a little part of his cremated remains will be sent to the moon okay. and landed on the moon at the end of this year. Now, besides the kind of the silly side of, of, you know, pay for a bit of the payload, there is a rover going to be going to the moon with this, um, a Japanese rover called Yao Ki. And that little rover, it's the cutest little thing ever. A little tiny micro rover, in essence, two wheels hooked together. So it doesn't matter if it falls over, all it is is wheels. 
So people have the opportunity to send small, precious items, maybe of yes. sentimental value. Yes, a, to a, the moon. you know, a flower out of your wedding bouquet, if that suits you, mm. or some other, you know, personal item. They're not incredibly expensive as long as it's small. It's one point two million dollars per kilogram to get to the moon. Yeah, as long so as this small. isn't a, a precursor for <laughs> us, you know, looking for a home for our landfill. No, I think it would be a little bit more expensive to send your landfill up to the moon. Francis, when we talk about the exploration of Mars, this is ongoing, great excitement around it. But we're we're coming to the point now where we'll have this joint European-Russian mission mm-hmm. this year. Yes. What's going to happen? So this is part of ExoMars, which is an ongoing series of missions that started a few years ago with an orbiter, which is currently around Mars. There was a test of a lander, which tested quite carefully that they hadn't figured everything out as it crashed. But this one is a a rover on a lander. So there's a Russian lander that's going to go to Mars taking this European rover called Rosalind Franklin. Now, Rosalind Franklin, the name conveys, oh, DNA and life and understanding what's going on. So this rover has a big drill, it will drill below the surface of Mars because Mars, with its very thin atmosphere, the stuff you can get to easily has been affected. It's been ionising radiation from the sun has really affected the surface. So the intent is to drill beneath the surface and then you look for the chemical composition and possible signs of life. And that's the whole aim of this. It's looking for life. It's looking for, is there anything below the surface that hasn't been sterilised, that can tell us, is our neighbour in space a place where life has arisen? And what are the signs right now? Well, there is some unusual gas activity on Mars. So the, the, the trace gas orbiter, which was already launched, is detecting methane. Methane is associated with life processes on this planet. It's also associated with chemical processes. And we're not sure because this methane appears and then disappears. So is something making it or is it an intermittent chemical reaction? We're not sure. So we have to go and look a little bit more clearly. And what about asteroids then and the plans that they have for this anti-asteroid DART system? I love this one. Okay, so there are no big asteroids currently headed towards the Earth. I mean, we're, we're fairly safe. We're safe on that front. Yeah, well, there's nothing larger than 140 metres. There's plenty of things smaller than 140 metres. And then what would you do about it anyway? So the intention of this technology tester is to go to a known asteroid that has a known little asteroid moon. So we can see this moon whizzing around its parent asteroid. The intent is to hit the little moonlet and nudge it just a tiny little bit. Mm, a small push. A very small for push. For humanity. But that small push will be detectable in the timing of its orbit around its parent. So we'll know whether this is actually even possible. It's a, it's a technology demonstrator. It is not going to push this asteroid and its moon anywhere else in space. But it is going to nudge them, give them a little shake uh, to see can we do it. So that if we do detect something else on a collision course, at least we have an idea that, yes, chucking hardware at it and pushing it could work. And as for the grand stretch in the day... 
the easiest way to notice the stretch, I mean, I, the planet does it automatically as we're tilted, as we orbit the sun. It's all related to the seasonal changes that we see. So each day as we turn round towards the sun, we're facing it for a bit longer each day. But the easiest stretch is actually go west. You've got a time of sunset tonight in Dublin at 20 to 5. But in Tralee, it's at a minute to 5. So ah, you'll get difference. 20 minutes just by going across the country. Frances McCarthy of Blackrock Castle Observatory from Today with Claire Byrne. And on the Ryan Tuberty Show, Eurovision. The Irish public get to vote this year on the song that represents the country. Ryan was talking to RTE's Eurovision man, Michael Keeley, in the morning. Michael Keeley, good morning. Uh, good morning, Ryan. Michael, you're the executive director of Eurosong and you've kind of taken a swerve in the road now back to the loving arms of the Late Late Show on the 4th of February. Uh, tell us what's what's the deal and what brought you brought you to us, as, as it were. It's a bit like football coming home, Ryan, isn't it? I mean, it's coming back to the Late Late Show. It, it, it's a while since we've done uh, a Eurosong. I think mm. it's 2015 or 2016, I think was the last time we did a Eurosong. Right. Um, and uh, we just, like, every year we would, you know, obviously we would look at what we've done the previous year. We've looked at how we've fared and we look at to see what we could do better, what we could do different. So we kind of took a different tack after that last Eurosong. It was a very memorable Eurosong, as you, as you remember. Um, and uh, so we decided this year just to go back to it. You know, we just had an yeah. open competition. We got over 330 songs and we've whittled them down through an exhaustive process to the six that you're, you're going to hear this week. Okay. Is it, is it exhausting listening to all those songs? <laughs> If you ever try to sit down and listen to 330 songs <laughs> oh in a God. row, it is, um, it is quite the task, let me just tell you that. Um, and it w- wasn't one that I undertook on my own. You'll be, you'll be glad to hear. I am glad to but, hear that. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but um, it was, uh, yeah, it, 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 can be, it can be difficult, you know, because you can't listen to them like straight, you know, you yes. can't listen to 330 straight. So you have to listen to a few, you have to go away, think about them, come back, listen to a few more and uh, get a sense of... Um, get a sense of you know, what they are and, and uh, you know, whether they could do well potentially for us in Eurovision. And what I get the impression from, from watching it over the years, Michael, is that you, the Eurovision family, community, whatever you want to call them, are, feels this great sense of ownership of the phenomenon that is the Eurovision. And by, by this I mean that people who want to enter a competition like this to win the song for, for, for Ireland and then ultimately represent Ireland, they come from all over the world uh, to write these songs, like the list of, of composers for that first song. Uh, you know, it, it's an international flavour. Yeah, well, I mean, it's, it's, I suppose it's reflective of the way the music industry is now, you know. So um, technology obviously has allowed people to collaborate across great distances. So you get a lot of Irish songwriters who would collaborate with people in Sweden or would collaborate with people in, you know, uh, Germany or in America or even in Australia. So they would they would get together and you would often find, I mean, very, very few songs that come in these days to Eurovision are written solely by one person. They generally speaking, they're mm. collaborations, you know. Mm. Um, so, uh, but you know, yet yeah, they're all they're all very passionate, they're all very committed about it, and um, they're all uh, very keen on doing well, which is great. You know, um, why have we not? Had, why have we just not done well enough in recent years? I, well, I, 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 you're asked this question every year, and, and <laughs> no, but it is hard. I, I'm not trying to be smart. It, no, it, no, it, what, what is it like? We, we we always have an excuse. It's kind of like, oh well, you know, the, 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 no one likes Ireland anymore. The or, the or Brexit, or you know, there's always. <laughs> An excuse to hand. What are we going to do this time that well, will increase just, our enhance our chances? Just, just, 
just to, to to sort of set the record straight. I mean, we we've done we've we haven't done great, I suppose, in the last few years. That's true. Um, but if you were to take it over the last say ten years, you know, we've or eleven years, like we've qualified maybe five times in in eleven years, which is pretty much representative of. Uh, you know, an average country. So Ryan asked Michael about that public vote. That brings us to the, the 4th of February and people listening this morning will, will have a vested interest in it because they can vote. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. It's a combination of... of, of um... Well, um, there's going to be a national jury, an international jury and a public vote. All right, okay. So uh, the national jury, obviously, people will be familiar with. The international jury, I think, is a new innovation just in that um, because it's an international competition, it is uh, worthwhile uh, hearing what other European countries, yeah. uh, people in other European countries think of our entry, you know. Um, it's something that a lot of countries uh, abroad do. Um, Sweden do it, Norway do it, various other countries do it as well. So it is something I thought we'd just try again. Like, you know, we, we're always trying to innovate, we're always trying to do something different, we're always trying to enhance our, our, our chances. So we thought we'd introduce the international jury this year. All right. Uh, what uh, we've got the six songs that we're we're, we're showcasing this week. Um, Michael, I have never been to the Eurovision Song Contest. Ryan, you should go, and I have been telling you for many years that you should go. It is an extraordinary entertainment event. You mentioned to yourself there; it's bigger than the Super Bowl. Yeah, it's the largest, biggest live music event in the world. You know, how so many have you? How many times have you been? I, I think I've been about ten. I think ten. And what when when you when you get back on the plane and and, and you leave on your way home, whatever about this disappointment or everything like that? Don't mind <laughs> that for a second. But what 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 is the joy that you get when you when you're packing your case? Um, well, there's, there's a certain joy about coming home after two weeks <laughs> anywhere. Yeah. Um, yeah. Just being part of uh, it, it, you mentioned yourself, there's a kind of a community, there's a sort of a, a, a spirit that um, Eurovision fans bring to the event as well, which is um, which is like nothing you'd experience anywhere else. You know, So there's a great sense of uh, camaraderie, there's a great collegiality between um, ourselves and, and colleagues in other broadcasters around Europe you yeah. know so um, it's just a, it's just a it's a very feel good uh, event you know there's mm-hmm. nothing in it that um, that you, you wouldn't like you know? Okay so now that we've invested in this we probably should do the radio show from there um, in, in it, it, It's essential yeah absolutely. I think it would be essential essential travel if nothing else and, uh, <laughs> in Turin I'd love to I'd love to go it's one of those experiences uh, broadcasting experiences I've never uh, had and I'd, I'd love to see it up close and, and in oh. real life you know yourself, Terry Wogan uh, yeah. was there for many, many years. Larry Gogan, our own Larry Gogan, was there for Marty. many years. Uh, Marty, of course, is the longest-serving uh, commentator in in Eurovision now. Okay. So he, uh, so we, you know, so we, we we have a certain stature there, Ryan, that I yeah. think you'd and you'd bring a, a certain something. I'd, to I'd as be well. happy to reduce it uh, with every minute <laughs> I spend there. Um, let me see. Uh, oh, Ryan says a text from Mary. We need something totally different and maybe go for our own traditional songs. It doesn't matter if we win. Uh, or not, at least we are celebrating our own culture. Do, 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 well, do, 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 do you factor that in? Um, well, to, to be honest, we it, it's all it's a it's a global pop music contest, really. So you have to enter something that you, I mean, you can enter something that you know isn't going to win, but is going to showcase your culture. Yeah. But there's not much point in doing that because we're in there to try and actually compete. We're trying to get to the final, and then ultimately we're trying to do well and possibly win it, you know. So um, all the songs are chosen with the view to doing well, you know, and and if a song comes uh, in the door that has that that X factor that is, 
you know, a typical uh, trad arrangement or a typical Irish song or whatever, or even if it's in Irish, more than happy to uh, to consider it. You know? What's the name of the young lad who's, who's running around with, with a fiddle? Very nice fiddle. We had him on the late, late then afterwards. He won it. He's the um, Norwegian guy. Yes. Um, yes. Yeah. He 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 won it about uh, about ten years ago. I can't. No, it. but don't do that name. Yeah. Doesn't matter so much. But that was you know that was a fiddle. <laughs> I mean, in other words, there is an app. There can be an appetite for uh, for ethnic music. Ethnic yeah. music is the word. Yeah. Well, it is. But ethnic music combined with it has to have a kind of a uh, a universal appeal to it as yeah, well. Yeah, so you know? a blend of sorts. Yeah, exactly, yeah. So, I mean, that was a, it was a, it was a great pop tune, you know, and that's yeah. one of the things, I suppose, that we look for is something that's going to be a great pop tune, something that would do well on radio, regardless of the Eurovision, you know, something that you think would be a hit and anyway, if, because, like, the, the songs that are entered now are songs that would be hits around Europe yeah. in, in any case, you know. That's Michael Keeley there. Then Ryan spoke to Eurovision fan Glenn. Glenn, good morning to you. Hi Ryan, how are you? Are you a Eurovision guy? Oh, super fan, yeah. Uh, tell, tell me, uh, you've heard two songs this morning. Um, did you like what you hear, heard? Yeah, yeah. Song one really at the moment stood out. Um, yeah, would get my vote anyway. I know that only two has been played, but song one at the moment anyway is for me. And can I ask you, this is an odd question, Glenn, but I'm just trying to put a bit, a bit of manners on, on who I am and who you are. What, what age are you? I am, um, actually I was 40 there in October. Congratulations. Thanks very much. Did you have a rubbish, boring birthday? I did, yeah. And will you make up for it when things calm down? Well, uh, your vision of May will make up for it, Ryan. Are, are you going? Oh, absolutely. Oh, yeah, booked flights, hotel booked and all paid for. Oh, good man. Okay, and who are you going over with? I'm going over with my friend Thomas. He's actually listen, listening right now. To, uh, this is his uh, 21st Eurovision now he'll be going to. Oh, good Lord. Okay, so the two yeah. of you are going to go over. Have you been to any Eurovisions before? I have, right. I started going in 2014 in Copenhagen. Oh, you're, you're, the, you're just the man we need to talk to. You're the expert. Here I am now. <laughs> uh, okay, so let's talk about the, the Eurovision events when you go to these these great cities and it just seems like this Mardi Gras of beautiful chaos uh-huh. and music. What What is it about it? Why, why do you keep going back? Right, well, I'll tell you a quick story. I yeah. dragged my best friend David to Copenhagen. He was not a Eurovision fan at all. He okay. hated it. He knew nothing about it. I dragged him. We got off the plane, Ryan, yeah. and less than 24, we went to the Eurovision parties and stuff, and he was constantly in my ear at the parties. Is this on every year? Is this on every year? Is this on every year? It's amazing. <laughs> it's amazing. And he has come at me some years. Some years he didn't. But it's just, it's just magical, Ryan. You said yourself there, you should go. I'm telling you now, you should go. Words can't describe it. What would, I, what, just, what would I get out of it, Glenn? I mean, we don't know each other necessarily, but, you, you know, from, from what you've seen, what, what do you think I might get out of it? You would just, just enjoy, pure enjoyment. You know, when I was in Copenhagen, I was just shocked just seeing people of all ages, families, uh, people in their 70s, 60s, 50s, all age brackets, uh, men, women, you know, everyone there, just there to enjoy themselves, making friends with people from different countries, um, it's just fun, Ryan. It's just a lot of fun, and it's you know there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of bad things happening in the world, and for a week it just takes you away from all of that, and it just you're smiling just constantly, and you meet lovely people, and you just have so much fun. You, you, you know, you're so right, and especially now, uh, this is this is the time for something as colourful and welcome and different. Yeah, uh, as your vision to to give us a, a, a bit of joy. Um, let me ask, let me ask you, Glenn, as well about you know the Irish. The Irish haven't done so well despite plucky effort. Uh, he yeah. says patronisingly, but uh, we just haven't done done well. What's it like to go over and see? You know, you obviously you're flying the flag for and probably literally when you're there on the day, um, and we just don't seem to have had the chops for it of late. 
Yeah, it's a, it's a tough one to put your finger on what's going wrong. Yeah. Um, I mean, when Ryan qualified when, when in Lisbon, yeah. um, that was just magical a moment for me personally. I was there and it was the first time since I've started going that Ireland qualified. Um, they kind of touched on something. I don't know what it is, but I think they really touched on something there. It got people, um, the, the whole stage and everything was, was, was right. Mm. Um I think last year it just didn't come across well on TV, yeah. um, and you know, just you know, the, it just it, you just have to get it right. Sometimes it can come across good on TV, sometimes it can't, and that's just it, that's just a. The $10 million question, that's what's it, going that's on? It. When, when I was, the reason I asked your age so rudely was uh, because when I was kind of growing up, and uh, I don't know if it's grown up, I was growing up in Ireland, kept winning the Eurovision. Um, but the point I'm making is that, that there was this national song contest. And yeah. I got a sense that since that's gone, uh, people felt less of an ownership of the Irish Eurovision project. Yeah. Um, and that unless you were really into it like you, you just didn't really, not that you didn't care, but you just weren't, as, as I say, invested in it. But I, I'm hoping what we're going to do in the late, late, we'll, we'll, we'll change that a little bit. All right. It'd be fantastic if, if RT did this and like it, it, it came across well because all the countries, they're all, I'm following the news from all the different, what's going on in the different countries and how they're doing it. But a lot of the countries who would normally have national selections, they're all getting on board now and they're all surprisingly bringing in a national selection show and okay. I, I think I've, I've a lot listened to those two songs this morning I've a lot of hope um, for this year for, for next year or not for this year um, what, what, what we can produce So we've had Rachel Good Brendan Murray and then we've got more coming down the tracks a song a day uh, and then there'll be the uh, the show itself then to pick, to pick a song and as I say it's kind of musical democracy in action Glenn yeah, absolutely. That's but the plan. So you've got your tickets booked. You're ready to go. Oh, hotel booked, flight booked. Just waiting for the tickets for the show to be released. And then you're 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 gone. That's it. I'm gone for a week, Ryan. Good man. Well, listen, I'm really glad. Thanks for your insights. I really Thank enjoyed talking to you. Thanks, Glenn. That's Glenn on the Ryan Tuberty Show. And on today with Claire Byrne, the spread of Omicron and the evolution of COVID-19 into a milder infection in the future. Claire was talking to the WHO's Dr. David Nabarro. You were had an interview in the Business Post yesterday here in Ireland and you said in that interview that the spread of Omicron variant could signal the first phase of COVID-19 becoming a common cold. Will you explain yeah. to us what that might look like, what you're expecting to happen? Thank you. Viruses, when they arrive in the human population, are often quite ferocious. But in the succeeding months and years after their arrival, typically they go in one of two directions. The first direction is that they just die out. They basically lead to the death of those who they infect. And then there is a no way in which the virus can continue to stay alive because it's killed so many of the people who are affected by it. But on the other hand, other viruses over time become milder. They not only don't kill the people that they infect, in fact, they actually uh, lead to virtually no disturbance and it becomes a bit like uh, a common cold or other similar transient infections. 
Uh, and that means that the virus can stick around in the human population, not causing death. That's very good for the virus. It means it continues to multiply. And our anticipation is that this uh, new coronavirus that we first met at the beginning of 2020 will over time become a perfectly calm virus that does not cause major illness, perhaps leads to occasionally a few people unfortunately getting severely ill, but otherwise it will be a little bit like the common cold. And that's where we think this virus eventually is headed. Mm -hmm. But it's not there yet, Claire. And that's why we're saying to everybody, you know, it will be really difficult the next few weeks because there will be surges and in some places they will lead to a lot of unpleasantness, hospitals overwhelmed, health workers really, really up against the wall. Uh, and so please let's everybody recognise that in this turning point, which is where I think we, we are just coming into, uh, it won't be plain sailing. And do you expect when those difficult situations arise that they will happen in unvaccinated populations or populations that have low vaccination rates? Well, certainly uh, where there are people with no immunity or little immunity to the virus, the, the consequences are likely to be much worse. So that'll be either places where there's not been much infection uh, because they haven't encountered the virus yet, and that's in many parts of the world, actually, or secondly, people uh, who have decided that they don't want to be vaccinated or they have not been able to access vaccination and, and they will get more ill. And, and I think that's pretty well now evident from all over the world that those who've not been infected and those who've not been vaccinated seem to get a much worse much worse experience with COVID. And people who have said similar to what you're saying this morning, they often have a proviso in there. They say, you know, we may see another variant. But you have said that a more lethal variant is unlikely to become dominant. Why? So viruses become dominant when they are more easily transmissible between people. And then the more transmissible virus replaces the original one, and it happens quite naturally. It's what we do, in fact, call natural selection. And at the moment, we seem to have a less serious virus that is much more easily transmitted. That's the Omicron variant gradually replacing the earlier variants, certainly in Western Europe and increasingly all over the world. Now, if another variant is going to come in and replace Omicron, firstly, it will need to be more easily transmissible than Omicron. Now, will a more easily transmissible variant also be more lethal? Well, most of the people to whom I have spoken are saying that's really unlikely to happen. So if we get more lethal variants, we expect them to be less transmissible and in the end unlikely to displace Omicron uh, as the dominant variety. And Claire asked David if a fourth dose of the vaccine might be necessary. Well, the colleagues in the WHO are saying that if really we want to be using vaccine as the primary method of helping populations to stay safe in the face of Omicron, 
uh, we really ought to be developing a vaccine that is specially adapted to Omicron because simply just giving people more and more boosters of the existing vaccines is a bit inefficient. It, it really does use up vaccine. And one of the things that that does is decrease the amount of vaccine available for poorer nations who are often getting donations from rich countries of, of almost expired vaccine. And we'd say, actually don't use up all the, all the vaccine that's available with more and more boosters. If necessary, do, just develop one that's a bit more suited to Omicron. We have a lot of boosters in this country and we're told over the last few days that both the Sunday Times and the Irish Times reporting that hundreds of thousands of booster vaccines are going to go out of date within the next two weeks. What should mm. happen to those booster doses? Is there any way that they can be used elsewhere at this point with the clock ticking? No, and it's really impossible to redeploy uh, vaccines uh, with two weeks' notice, uh, honestly. Uh, we'll end up with, with real difficulty with using them. I mean, you do get vaccines expiring in these kind of campaigns, particularly some of the vaccines that are being used in Europe. They are what we call messenger RNA vaccines. They have to be kept super cold. They're jolly difficult to handle. Uh, people, I know it's disturbing when you hear of vaccines expiring, but it's it's almost inevitable in the current circumstances. But let's not assume that you can redeploy vaccines that have only two weeks left. And we recently saw from UNICEF that they're finding it hard to cope with vaccines that have got two months left. They really need uh, a good long time, at least six months, if they're going to be useful, especially in poorer places. OK, and then on the uh, Omicron-specific vaccine, are yes. you, have you any sense of when that's coming? I uh, read what others are reading, which is usually material that comes from the manufacturers, and they're telling us either 100 days or, or uh, something like that, three to four months, uh, in order to really get the, the production going. Uh, I'm afraid I'm, uh, like others, sort of stuck with that information. But I want to make one point, and that is that my friends at the World Health Organization once the, any new uh, adapted vaccine is developed, will still require rigorous uh, testing procedures before they give an emergency use licence for the adapted vaccine. And that's important. We really always have to check for efficacy and safety. And I wonder, uh, th those who are, who've had three doses of the vaccine, mm. so the two original doses and the booster shot, yeah. will they need this adapted vaccine? Don't, I, cannot, I cannot say. Do you know why I can't? Because there's just so little information about for how long you are protected after you've had three doses of one of the existing vaccines uh, against Omicron and when does that protection fall? And I don't have that information. I don't think anybody has that information yet. So it's too early to say uh, whether or not uh, those who've had three doses of the original vaccines will indeed need an additional dose of the Omicron specific. I don't want I don't want to get get myself into a situation where I make statements about this sort of thing when I really don't have the answer. Okay. Sorry for that. All right, that's that's fair enough. There's a lot of talk here about exiting the pandemic, making a plan mm. and making it quickly uh, if some had their way to. Mm you know, release all of the restrictions that are still in place. But there are others yeah. who say we need an emergency plan where we can revert to aggressive suppression yeah. measures if needed. What's your advice on, on all of that? 
Well, I think you can probably guess that I'm going to be for route two, which is having capacity to deal with a, a nasty surge uh, if needed. Because I keep saying to myself, you know, I know virtually nothing about this virus. It's so new and it's just mutated to produce this totally extraordinary variant, Omicron, which is changing the whole view of the thing. And that only happened mid-December. So my general point to everybody is simply, you know, hope for the best, but expect all sorts of challenging difficulties. And that means having plans for some degree of restriction on movements, probably local, if we get a bad surge and suddenly health services get overwhelmed and, and people start to perish. And, and that's the way I want everybody to do it. Plan ahead, plan ahead for things to be going good, plan ahead for things to be going bad, but there's no point in making your plans based just on hope. You have to make your plans based on what we've learned about this virus, and that is it's really cunning and difficult to deal with. That's Dr David Navarro of the WHO from Today with Claire Byrne. And on the live line, another programme dominated by the issue of violence against women. Ruth Maxwell called Joe about her experience. Uh, do, you, do you want to begin, Ruth, it's up to you. do you want to begin just in the briefest detail, if you wish, to, 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 to tell us what happened? Yeah, but I'd, I have to just say there, Joe, that out of the five women, I was the only one that wasn't sexually attacked. Okay. I, I was physically, yeah, yeah, I wasn't sexually he, assaulted he, during he, it. He didn't get you into the van, basically. No, no, he, yeah. you know, he just couldn't get me down on the ground or anything yeah. either. Um, but, you know, I was just on my way to work going about my own business. And the the one place where you do consider, you know, mm-hmm. To, I don't know how to explain it, you know. You're just on your way to work. You're pottering about your own business. You don't expect the streets to be unsafe. You yeah. just don't. And, you know, people do kind of forget about the random attacks. Now, I say random because it's random in the life of the victim. They're totally caught off guard. Yeah. Your life is. And I, I do understand they're they're considered less serious than, you know, domestic violence and stuff. But there can be a lot more physical injuries and, you know, ultimately very fatal in an instant. And, you know, sometimes we're the forgotten victims. And, you know, it's when something like this happens that, you know, victims who possibly have survived incidents like this, you know, they should be listened to. And, you know, I spent so much time giving out about the fact that there's no support for services. I've received nothing now at this stage. There's nothing for my hand, no mm-hmm. psychological supports. And the HSE had said it wasn't financially viable for them to consider giving me any psychological supports. Like if you're to help victims, you have to set up, you know, rehabilitation programs, reintegration yeah. programs for victims back into society, just like you do for offenders can't be expected to just all of a sudden after a trial get on with their lives again like my life has changed completely I mean I can't manage a lot of things anymore physically and then psychologically I mean as Helen McEntee had said it was a woman's worst nightmare for something like Mm -hmm. that to happen but as a woman who survived something like that you you're in another nightmare where you're trying to 
to reintegrate yourself back into society with as minimal amount of fear as you can because you're literally controlled by fear then. Like, I micromanage my movements every single day. Mm. Every single day. You know, like, I I do go out running again and I love going running and I would never hold keys in my hand or anything like that. I need my hands free. But I did. I was gifted a, a run angel, which is a little bracelet with 120 decibels and connected to an app and tracked your location mm-hmm. and all. They're manufactured in Ireland. And I did use that for a while. But then I said to myself, no, I need to be able to, to still wear my headphones and not have that fear. Although I do, you know, observe absolutely everything in yeah. my surroundings all the time. But I'm not going to to sit and wait for something to happen to me. I'll do everything that I can in my power to help me feel safe and confident because I have to go a lot further than everybody else because of what's happened to me. And I don't think anybody could ever, ever understand the depths of that. But the, the worst part of that for me is that I don't have supports and I don't have services. And I am very, very angry with the Department of Justice over that. Very angry because I wouldn't allow that kind of behaviour for my child or for any other victim mm. if I could help it. And Joe asked Ruth about the attack. And um, and you were, as you say, this man had sexually assaulted a number of women previously. In your case, it was what coming up to seven a.m. in the morning. You were walking to work, and he he. he tried to abduct you basically and put you into this van but he he was using a hunting knife and that's what seriously damaged your hand as you tried to get away from him. Yeah, he had the hunting knife in his right hand and it was on my chin and he had a dirty cloth in his left hand but I had my left hand carrying my handbag on my shoulder so my fingers were tucked in on my shoulder and I was fighting off the the cloth Mm -hmm. with my elbow And he was trying to pull me back. But the minute the knife went from my chin down to my throat, I just knew, well, here I'm I'm Uh in a life or death situation here for myself. And I'm I'm one of those lucky ones that I didn't freeze. You know, I had about two seconds where I had nearly my whole life flash in front of me. And I just thought, no, just this this can't happen to me, you know. And I just had to pull my my hand out from under my handbag, which I was lucky it was up there on my shoulder because that's the hand that I was able to put around the blade and pull it from my my throat. But yeah, I knew that I was going to to do some serious damage to to my hand. And yeah, my hand never never really recovered after that. They did repair the tendons. You know, Mm -hmm. there was two surgeries on my fingers. But I mean, if, if you knew me as a person, you know, like my hair goes up I'm very minimal. I mean, I can't mm-hmm. really wear jewellery, button clothes. I'm trying to avoid jeans and belts and things like that. Mm-hmm. They're just, you know, when it comes to getting dressed. Like, I, you know, I do have kind of at this stage a sense of humour in it, you know. Um, I was putting on one day at home my runners and I put the the laces on the outside and on the inside on the ground and I slip my foot in and then I just tie my laces. Everything's strategically done with yeah. my hand. And I was so delighted I got my runners tied just perfectly. And I was like, oh, that's going to be a good start to the day. But sure, and I'd forgotten to put my trousers on. <laughs> <laughs> so I was like, oh, my God, the one day you think you're off to a good yeah, start sure. and you've forgotten yeah. something else. 
so you know th- these are little things that I I would have been reduced to tears before yeah. like there are times that it's really really difficult but I do keep a lot of that to myself but I'd be very very angry that you know I have no psychological supports where I can mm-hmm. sit and discuss these things on how to make my life easier for me and the whole physical side Ruth Maxwell from the live line with Joe Duffy And on today with Claire Byrne, the great resignation. Uh, Now, as cliched as it might sound, this is the time of year when people really start to assess their lives and decide to make changes. And a new career is one of the biggest moves you can make. Sinead English is founder of Hilt Career Consultancy and is with me for more on how to approach making such a big change. Sinead, good morning to you. Good morning, Claire. I have a message here because we were mentioning earlier that you were coming on. This person says, I've been in the transport industry since my early 20s. Now I'm 43 and I hate it. It's not even COVID or rising costs. I'm just fed up. I should feel lucky, but I'm burnt out. I want to spend more time with my wife and three children, but I just don't know where to start. And that's what we want to talk to you about today is how do you begin the process of this massive change? Okay, well, it's good. It's a good way to start. And I think, you know, the first thing to say to that particular um, uh, viewer or um, caller and also to everybody else is, to first of all decide why you want to change. You know, what are the things that are really annoying you in your job? And I think um, that texter has already made that decision as to what those things are. Uh, because I think, you know, we're all talking about the great resignation and the big quit. And it's almost like we feel, oh my gosh, well, maybe I should be leaving my job because everybody else is doing it. It's a bit of a herd effect. Uh, but first of all, you know, just getting out a piece of paper and writing down, okay, well, what don't I like about my job? Is there anything I like about my job? What would I like to do more of? What would I like to do less of? And then start figuring out okay, well, what are the options open to me? So it may be the case that you may have to do some more retraining. Um, It may be the case that the best thing to do, rather than just responding and going on the internet late at night and looking up loads of ads and sending out CVs and never hearing back, is to have conversations with a few different people who you know are working in different industries and different areas that you're thinking, you know, maybe something I've always been interested in. I wonder what are the chances of me actually making a move to that kind of industry? Sinead English from Today with Claire and that's it for Playback Daily, so mind yourself till next time.